I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's always a blessing to be here to preach to you all and uh, to bring the Word of God to you. Uh, this is one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, so I'm very excited to, to preach to you. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read our text this morning. It's printed there uh, on the, there's a children's bulletin in there, and it's on the back of that. Um, and you can fill out the blanks on the children's bulletin if you feel like you want to do that. But I'll go ahead and read that for us and pray, and then we'll get started. So hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in awe of who you are. We come before you worshiping you and praising you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear your word. I pray that you would be with me, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, Lord. May your will be done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with excitement that you just have to burst out about something? A friend of mine is a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. Now, if you pay any attention to football, you might know that the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl this past year. That's a pretty big deal because they've been you know, in existence since before the Super Bowl era, which started in uh, 1967. It's when the first Super Bowl was. And up until this year, they had never won. So I have this friend, like I said, he was so excited that they won, he just had to let it out. So once the game ended, and once the Eagles were declared the Super Bowl champions, he, he's at a college, and the very first thing he did was grab a pot and a pan out of his dorm. It's like 10, 30, 11 at night where he was when the game ended. And he just runs outside and starts banging the pot and pan together, yelling, fly, Eagles, fly! <laughs> he just was so excited that he had to burst out about what happened. Now, many of you might not have the same fervor for a sports team like my friend does, but a lot of us can recall times in our lives where we're just so overcome with joy that we have to burst forth in some kind of glorious response. In our passage this morning, when you read it, you get the sense that Paul is so overwhelmed with the wonders of the gospel and the blessings that are revealed in Christ, 
that he just can't contain it. The very first thing he does after greeting the Ephesians is go on this long, exalted praise tangent almost to God. He talks about the blessings he has given and he sets the tone for everything that follows in his letter here. As Paul speaks, you can kind of notice it's, it's a little, the language he uses is a little clunky to us in English. It's this kind of really exalted language. He's just got all these clauses in there, just all these adjectives describing the gloriousness of God and the praise that he deserves. So because of this, this whole passage, after, starting in verse 3 and all the way to verse 14, is just kind of one long extended stream of praise. Because it's this one kind of praise thought, in order to understand it rightly, we have to recognize that these verses that he gives aren't just little isolated nuggets. They all flow together. So they're one great united outburst of praise. So because of this, one of the things that is really helpful to do in Scripture when you have a passage like this is to see what's repeated a lot. See, you know, what kind of comes out, what he's trying to emphasize. So before we really get into the main points of this passage, I do want to point out three things that just jump off the page at you when you read this text because he says them so much. So like I said, these aren't my three main sermon points, and I'll get to those in just a second. But these three things really help us see the text in the right light. They kind of give the tone for all the praises that Paul is giving. So there are things you want to keep in mind as we go through the sermon this morning. So the first thing is this. Everything in this passage is by God's initiative and for God's glory. Everything is by God's initiative and for his glory. And we see this in every single verse. Look through this passage with me. I'm going to read off a few things. We see God's the one getting all the attention and all the credit. He's doing all the action. He's the one taking all the initiative. So look through this passage with me. It's God who blessed us, who chose us, predestined us, redeemed us, forgave us, lavished grace upon us, made known a mystery to us. It's God who unites all things, who appoints us for himself, who works all things according to the purpose of his will who seals us, who guarantees our inheritance. And it is God who will redeem us as his possession. And then throughout this text, we also see things like, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. We see these things repeated over and over and over again. It's like Paul's a CD that's stuck on repeat, just playing a song over and over and over again. So that's the first thing. Everything in this passage resounds to God's glory, and it's all done by his initiative. And the second thing that kind of marks this passage that you see repeated over and over again is that everything in this passage happens in Christ. So again, I'll read awesome things here. God blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption through Christ. He redeemed us through the blood of Christ. He set forth the mystery of his will in Christ. He unites all things in Christ. And appoints us for himself in Christ. And then Christ is the one in whom there's hope. In whom he's the word of truth. He's the one in which the gospel of salvation is heard. And he's the one in whom we believe. So you see all these things in this text. And then those themes continue into chapter 2 as well. They don't just stop in chapter 1. Look briefly with me if you have your Bibles to uh, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 2. Paul says, 
He raised us up with him, speaking of Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in these first two chapters, Paul's just constantly repeating, this is in Christ. All these things are happening in Christ. It's because of what Christ has done for us. So God, in all these blessings, does them and accomplishes them by his own initiative to manifest the riches of his grace in Christ. And notice here, in chapter 2, there's more to it than just this, than showing us the riches of his grace and showing us his glory. But verse 7 there says that he does this in kindness towards us. And this leads us to the third major theme that we see in this passage. It's that God did all this not just for his glory. Yes, his glory is central in this passage. It runs all through it. But he also did this to bless us. This entire passage is an outflow of praise, thanking God for the blessings that we have in Christ. You see this in verse 3, just to start out. The thing that causes Paul to do this is he says, Blessed be God, the Father, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 4, he begins as, with this. He says, Even as he, so everything he describes, he's blessed us with all these things, even as he has done this and does this and done this. Everything he describes from verse 4 on is a blessing. In Christ, And this really brings out this kind of theme I mentioned earlier, this flow of everything, um, everything being one great outpouring of praise. Because everything from verses 4 to 14 is just Paul praising him for the blessings that he's given us. So that's what we're really going to focus on this morning. And that's what my three main points are around is the blessings that God has given to us in Christ. So here's the main point I want you to get from the sermon. The main thing is because God has so richly blessed us in Christ, our lives ought to overflow with praise for him. I'll say it one more time. Because God has so richly blessed us in Christ, our lives ought to overflow with praise for him. Now, when you're looking at this text, there's a lot of things that you could say about it. This main point is just one aspect of the text. I could preach a whole series just on this, just on these 14 verses. There's so much here, uh, so I won't be able to hit all of it. But I want to focus mainly on, there's three kind of types of blessings that Paul really highlights in this text. There's more blessings than just these, but these kind of encompass everything. So the three points then are past blessing, present blessings, and a future blessing. As we get to each point, we'll talk more about what these blessings are, but I think that's kind of a helpful way to think about this text, past, present, and future. So the first one, the past blessing, is this. We see this in verses 4 through about 6. But we see that we have been chosen in Christ. That's the past blessing. We have been chosen in Christ. Now, as you read this text, you know, I've been talking about Paul just going in this outburst of praise and some of the words in this text might distract you from what he's doing because they might make you seem a little uneasy 
Things like predestination and being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, this doctrine of election that's in the text. Some of these things make us uneasy sometimes. They cause controversy. They're hard for us to swallow. And it's not really my purpose here in this sermon to explain how God's election and predestination work. And if you want to, I can talk with you more afterwards about that if you want to get into some of those details. But I really want to focus on a few things that Paul sets up in this passage to help us understand this doctrine of election and predestination in the right light. Because it's really important. And the first thing is this. The doctrine of election is not something that should be wielded around with a heavy hand. And what I mean by that is that God revealed election to us not as something to make us prideful, not as something to show our theological superiority over those who don't really believe in election the same way we do. He didn't use it to show us how great we are that he chose us. So what I mean by this, we shouldn't really walk around town to every person we meet. I hope, you know, if you believe in election, you don't do this. But we shouldn't walk around to every person we meet and go, I'm elected and you're not, so uh, great for me. You know, that's not really how we should handle this doctrine. And another thing we shouldn't do is go around to those who don't hold to something like unconditional election, who are Christians, and say, well, you're not a faithful Christian, and I'm just a superior Christian because I hold to this doctrine of election, clearly. You know, that's not how we should handle this doctrine. And though we probably wouldn't say it like that, for those of us in in our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, sometimes that's a temptation, is to handle this doctrine in a prideful way And, you know, the reality is God has revealed this to us to humble us, not to give us an exhaustive list of everyone whom he has chosen. So we preach the gospel to everyone. And not only that, but when we look at this doctrine, it teaches us how humble we should be and how thankful we should be for what Christ has done. In verse 4, to really get to the point of this and go back to the text so you can see it there. In verse 4, Paul says that God chose us so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now this is important. This is kind of, it's the end. It's the purpose for which God chose us is so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice that it doesn't say God chose us because he knew we would be holy and blameless. It's not saying God chose you because you're so great that he looked and, and thought that you were awesome and decided, yeah, that person is deserving of my grace. The only reason God ever gives for Scripture choosing, or that Scripture gives for God ever choosing anyone at all is because of his own good pleasure. It doesn't really go beyond that. It doesn't have to do anything with the people that he chooses. It doesn't have to... It's not, this, it's not this doctrine where, you know, God chose you because he thought you were holy enough to be chosen. Instead, if you're a believer, God chose you precisely because it gives him pleasure to take sinful people and make them holy before him. And he does this through the work of his son. And there's a reason for this. God is holy. The fact that God is holy means that sin cannot be in his presence. In fact, 
if sin comes before him, if someone who is sinful comes in his presence, someone contaminated with sin and comes before our holy God, God's wrath consumes that person. This is why God in Exodus 33 told Moses on Mount Sinai, no one can see my face and live. In order to stand before God, we must be holy. And thus this doctrine of election, all of this that Paul is talking about, reveals our deep, deep, deep need for Christ. Christ's life of holiness and blamelessness on our behalf is the only way that we as sinful men can ever stand before God. So when we think about the doctrine of election, this is the light that we should think about it in. And when we do that, it becomes wonderful. This is why Paul, when he talks to the Ephesians, who are sinners, just like us, he doesn't address them as, hey, you sinners in Ephesus. He calls them saints because they've been chosen in Christ. And Matthew Henry put it pretty beautifully. He says that when God chooses people, he chooses them not because he foresaw that they would be holy, but because he determined to make them so. Friends, this should be a great comfort to us. It means we can come before God, we can confess our sins, knowing that even though we should stand before him condemned, we stand before him justified in Christ. This call to holiness, this this point for which God chose us, not only gives us this holy standing before God because of what Christ has done, but it also has huge implications for how we live now. As the people of God, we are to live lives that are holy. Now, we can't do this perfectly. You know, that's not what Paul's getting at here. But in Ephesians 5, Paul goes on to talk about this idea of holiness. And he didn't just talk about Christ giving himself up for the church so that Christ might justify us. But if you see in chapter 5, he says that Christ gave him up or gave himself up for the church in order that he might sanctify her. That is, make her holy. Not just present her holy before God, but make her holy now. He says, it is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So it's not that we have just been chosen to have a holy standing before God. That's certainly part of it. We see that all throughout the text. This holiness that we have is based on Christ. It's a standing that we have before God. But at the same time, we're to live lives marked by holiness now, even though it's imperfect. I chose my words carefully there. We're to live lives marked by holiness. That's imperfect holiness. We still sin all the time. But we are set apart from the world. We don't look the same as the world in Christ. There's a different way that our lives work, a different kind of tone that our lives take. And a lot of that is just being faithful, even though it's imperfect and we're sinners. It's being faithful, attending the means of grace, worshiping Christ, loving him, have a desire to follow him, even though we can't do that perfectly. 
And one of the ways we can see this is in the second half of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4. Paul kind of gives all this practical advice to believers. He lays out what this kind of holy life looks like practically. And it's beyond the scope of the sermon to deal with all those things this morning in detail. But I do want you to realize when you read the book of Ephesians, everything in those last three chapters show us what it means to live a life out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us, for this holy calling that he has given us and our holy standing before God. It's a life of gratitude. So Paul talks about this election, our being chosen in Christ for the purpose of being made holy. But he also says a few other things about it. As I've been saying, he's, and as I said at the very beginning of the sermon, election, because it's one of the things in this passage that Paul points out, is in Christ. And it's to the praise of his glorious grace. But he also says something else about it that leads us to the second blessing that we're going to focus on. He says we were chosen in Christ. But then he goes on to say that we were chosen lovingly. And that we were chosen for adoption. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And flowing from this comes redemption. And these are present realities for all who believe now. So that's the second point here. The second blessing I want to talk about. These present blessings of adoption and redemption through Christ. We see this mainly in verses 5 through 10. Adoption and redemption through Christ. Now when we think about adoption in our world, it really is a wonderful thing. Right? A child who didn't have a home comes into a loving family. He's raised as one of the family's own. And that picture of adoption in our world really is a beautiful illustration of Christ's love for us and what God has done for us in Christ. However, that's not really the picture God's getting at here. It's not what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 1. In the Roman world, when Paul wrote this letter, adoption meant something a little different than what we would think of it today. Adoption in the Roman world was more about having all your old debts canceled. And not only that, but your old debts were canceled, and then the person that adopted you brought you into his home, not just to make you one of the family and raise you, and then you move out when you're 18. You could be adopted really at any age in the Roman world, and that would happen so that you would be entitled to the inheritance of the one who adopted you. So the primary thing in adoption in the Roman world is about inheritance. Rulers would often adopt, legally adopt, their successors so that their successors, so those person that they could adopt would be entitled to their inheritance and their position. So this is the kind of idea that Paul is dealing with when he says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. He's saying there's this legal right that someone has to an inheritance. And as another thing in the Roman world that's kind of helpful to understand is it's not just it's not usually adoption in the sense of this person who doesn't have a family. It's usually actually someone who's related in an extended way to the person doing the adopting. So often rulers would adopt if they didn't have a son they would adopt a nephew so that that nephew would gain their inheritance and gain their position. Paul though 
he has that concept in his mind. So he brings up this picture of adoption to show how we're, we're brought into God's family. We're adopted so that we have this right to the inheritance that he gives us in Christ. And we see that later on here in this passage. But he doesn't just tie adoption to that inheritance and leave it. In verse 7, he starts talking about redemption. And redemption is another kind of concept in the Roman world that wasn't just, it's not just this religious idea. It was an actual name for something that they did. Redemption mainly had to do with paying a ransom for someone who was sold into slavery. So it often had to do with, you know, people would sometimes be sold as slaves for various reasons, whether they had debts to pay or a lot of times people were kidnapped and then they had to be, you know, they were sold into slavery. And if, you're, if you had someone who was kidnapped and they were in your family, a lot of times you would have to go find them and pay that ransom price to redeem them and make them free again. Now, this is kind of important because Paul, in this, with this idea of redemption, conjures up this imagery of someone being a slave. Okay, slaves in the, in the ancient world, even though they weren't always treated poorly, sometimes they had great responsibility within the houses of their masters and over their estates. But legally, they didn't have status as human persons. They had no right to any kind of inheritance. You could be a slave who was over your master's house, and then your master died, and you could just be kind of kicked to the curb. So Paul, with these things in mind, he, he brings together these two concepts of adoption and redemption in a way that was really unthinkable in the world in which he wrote. Because he's saying, not only are we redeemed, not only we have our trespasses forgiven and our debts canceled, not only are we made free, but also we're lovingly adopted in Christ. And he continues on in chapter 2, kind of picking up these same kind of themes. He says that we are made co-heirs with Christ. And this is the same Christ who in verse 10 of chapter 1 in our text unites all things in heaven and on earth under his royal rule. And not only that, but the mystery revealed in verse 9. Later, Paul talks about this in chapter 3 and he says that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the promises of Christ along with the Jews. Now, I just said a lot of stuff because Paul brings all these together and it's not may not be entirely clear how they all fit. But let me give you kind of an illustration to see what Paul is doing here. What the Ephesians are hearing is equivalent to this. Okay, let's say you're in Rome and the emperor's in town. Okay, so the emperor is there and he goes to the marketplace and he sees a foreign slave from another country. This person's not a Roman citizen, they don't have any rights. They're not seen as a person, really. They're just seen as someone to be bought and put to work. The emperor decides to redeem this person. He decides to pay their ransom, set them free. And he doesn't just leave it with this act of kindness. Instead, the emperor takes this slave, this foreigner, who has no right to anything, pays his ransom, brings him into his palace, adopts him. And not only that, he doesn't just groom him to be the next emperor. He makes him a co-emperor now. 
That is what the Ephesians are hearing. When Paul talks about adoption and redemption and us being adopted in Christ and made co-heirs in him. That is what God has done for us in Christ. That is what he has done. In Romans 2, Paul says, we were children of wrath under a curse. Slaves of sin. But now, in Christ, we become adopted and forgiven and redeemed. We become the children of God with a legal right to an inheritance for which we were chosen. God picked us out. We're the slave in the marketplace, and God walks up and chooses us and makes us his children. He makes us co-heirs with Christ. That's an incredible blessing. That should cause us to pour out our hearts in praise to him for what he's done. But there's more to it than this. You know, I mentioned that he says in love there. And again, that's something when you think about adoption in the Roman world, it's more about an inheritance. It's not really about love, right? I mean, probably they kind of liked their their extended family that they were adopting, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's just, you'd be a good ruler, so I'm going to adopt you so you can have my inheritance and rule after me. Love wasn't necessarily part of it, but Paul brings in love here. He says, we've been predestined in love and in Christ. And Paul goes on to identify Christ in verse 6 as the beloved one. Now that's really interesting. We are in Christ, so we're united to him. And then Paul calls Christ the beloved one, which reminds us that Christ is the one who communicates this love to us. The love of God is communicated to us in Christ. And it's not a subpar love. It's the same love that God has for Christ, the beloved one, that is communicated to us, his children, that he has adopted and made co-heirs with Christ. A place where we see this pretty clearly in Scripture is in John 17 when Jesus is there praying. He says that the love with which the Father loves him is a love that was from before the foundation of the world. Now that's the same language Paul uses here to describe God's loving predestination of us in Christ to adopt. It was before the foundation of the world. So let that sink in for just a moment. Friends, the love with which God loves you as one who is united to Christ. It's from before the foundation of the world. And it's the same love with which God loves his beloved one. This is a love that caused the son to redeem you. At an unfathomable cost. It's a love which caused him to go to the cross. So that you might have the forgiveness of sins through his blood. As Paul says in this passage. This is the redemption price. The blood of Christ. This is the cost of your adoption. It was done out of sheer love. And grace. 
This is a love, brothers and sisters, that cannot be shaken or broken. This is the love which God has for you in Christ, his beloved one. There's a quote by John Piper that I think is helpful here. It shows us how this love that God has for us is tied with adoption and how it becomes unshakable. He says, your adoption is not based on your fitness, your worth, or your distinctives. It is rooted in God's eternal purpose and grace. And that means that your adoption is not fragile or tenuous or uncertain. God will not adopt and then find out you are not worthy and unadopt. He knows we are unworthy and he chose us and predestined us for adoption. This is firm and sure and unshakable. And when we dwell on this, we can kind of get a sense of why Paul is just bursting at the seams and praise for God. He's thinking about what Christ has done for us, taking us from slavery to be co-heirs as adopted children of God. This is in love, and it's accomplished by the forgiveness of sins. And those are concepts that Paul picks up later on in the book of Ephesians, at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, when he encourages us and he exhorts us as believers, as those who have been adopted, as the family of God, those who are united to Christ and in unity with one another as the church. He says, love one another and forgive one another. And he doesn't just leave it there. He's not just saying this is some moral thing that I want you to do because it's good. He says, love one another and forgive one another as Christ has loved us and as Christ has forgiven us. And then he goes on. He doesn't even just leave it there. He gives some practical implications of that. He talks about the things that should and should not be among the body of Christ. In particular, he He says that our lives should not be marked by bitterness, anger, crudeness, sexual immorality, and covetousness. And he says these things, this life that you once lived is to be replaced by a life marked with thankfulness. Paul even says that those whose lives lives are marked by these things, again, he's not saying if you get angry or if you covet something or, you know, if you... If you lust, or if you get bitter towards someone, or if you make a crude joke, he's not saying doing that is going to keep you from inheriting the kingdom, but a life marked by that. He says those who do that, who have a life marked by these things, rather than by thankfulness, reveal themselves to have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Again, there's, there's a lot to that and how that works out. And it's not really the purpose of the sermon to show, you know, there's not like a line about these things. And those are things we could talk about another time. But those are implications of what Christ has done for us in the church. These are the way that we're supposed to handle our brothers and sisters. We're not to be bitter towards them. We're not to be angry at them. We're to forgive them and love them because Christ has done that for us. So how could we not 
overflow in praise for Christ by showing that kind of love and forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. I mentioned that Paul said that those whose lives are marked by these kind of these kind of sins and these kind of hatred and, and things towards one another have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But as the rest of our text shows, those who truly are redeemed, who show themselves to be faithful, not, not the ground of their justification of their standing before God, but who by their lives show that they have been changed, they have been redeemed. This inheritance is guaranteed for all of those. It's guaranteed for all who have been adopted, redeemed, and forgiven by faith in Christ. And this brings us to our third and final point, which is a future blessing, an inheritance in Christ. We see this mainly in verses 11 to 14. There's a story I heard about a small boy who was constantly coming home late from school. His parents started to get fed up with this. You know, he's coming home late. We don't know what he's doing. So they warned him this one afternoon, you know, or this one morning. They said, this afternoon, you need to come home on time. You need to be here on time because you can't, you keep coming home late. You need to be on time. So, you know, this piece of advice, instead of making the boy come home on time, made him a little rebellious. So he's like, well, you know, so he comes home even later than he had been coming home before. And he opens the door and his mom just looks at him and kind of walks away and says nothing to him. And then they go to the dinner table and he sees a plate set before him with a piece of bread and water. And then he looks at his father's plate. And it's full of meat and potatoes and vegetables and all these wonderful things. And the boy looks at his plate and then looks at his father's plate and then looks at his father. And his father just sits there and stares at him. He just, and then he just kind of, you know, after a minute or two, just kind of looks away. Let's it sink in and then takes his plate and switches it with his son's plate. And then he takes his son's plate and started. That boy, when he grew up, he said, ever since that day, I've learned what God is like because of what my father did. He was undeserving of anything. He came home, he had broken the rule, he had been warned explicitly, he was completely undeserving of anything. And yet his father, being gracious to him and wanting him to teach, or wanting him to, sh to show him what God had done for him, switched his plates. That's just a small thing. But it goes to show that our salvation does not depend on our Deserving it. We are completely undeserving of salvation, of adoption. And if it were up to us as sinners, like the boy, we would never be able to keep it. We would always be coming home late. We are that boy who comes home, deserves nothing but scorn and the wrath of his parents. And yet, instead, receives a great blessing from them. A biblical text that also illustrates this is the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son. 
This shows God's behavior toward us. This son wasted his inheritance. He went out and spent it on complete just filth. Yet when he comes home saying, Father, I should be treated like a servant. Just bring me into your house as a, as a servant. His father instead welcomes him home with a great feast. Even though he was completely undeserving of it. So we are undeserving of anything but God's wrath because of our sin. Because we're not holy on our own. Yet God has chosen us. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's promised us an inheritance. We see this in verse 14. Now, you'll notice there on your notes, I printed uh, those last four verses in the NIV as well as in the ESV. There are a few reasons um, that I think the NIV does a better job of translating it. Because in the ESV, it doesn't come out clearly that not only are we promised an inheritance in Christ... But God loves us so much that he appointed us as his own possession and his own inheritance. So let me read these verses here in the NIV. It says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So verse 14 there, you can see it more clearly in the NIV, talks about us being given an inheritance in Christ that's completely undeserving, but it also says that we are God's own possession. We are his own inheritance. And Paul goes on to say the same kind of thing in verse 18. Now the idea that the people of God are his inheritance goes back to the Old Testament. It has these roots there. You can see it clearly in a text like Deuteronomy 32.9, which talks about the Lord's portion and the Lord's heritage being his people. So with these kind of things in mind, Paul points us to a kind of mutual inheritance where we inherit God as our God and he possesses us as his inheritance, as his people. And in the Old Testament, there's this great refrain that's all through scripture. It's this hope that, that is built into the people of God and it's, it's this, I will be your God and you will be my people. So when Paul's talking here about this inheritance, that's what he has in mind. And he, he mentions here our side of this inheritance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit acts as a kind of down payment, which guarantees everything that comes because the Spirit is the one who sealed us. So we possess him now as part of this inheritance. He's a foretaste of the things to come. So we do have part of this now, but the main of it, the fulfillment of it, the fullness of this inheritance will only be received in the future. When God brings us into his presence as his own special inheritance forevermore. We see this in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. I'm only going to read a little bit because we're starting to 
run a little short on time here. But in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, just read this. This is the inheritance that's being described here by Paul. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, it is this inheritance that has been guaranteed for us in Christ. It is this inheritance that the Spirit has sealed for us and has guaranteed for us. This has been the hope of the people of God since long, long ago. And it's a wonderful hope that's been guaranteed for us in Christ. Christ has secured these things through his blood for all who trust in him. As we reflect on these things, these blessings, especially this inheritance that we look forward to, we realize he is worthy of our praise. As we close, I want to bring a few things back together for us. I mentioned in the beginning these themes that run through the text. Hopefully you've seen those come out, but I just want to re-emphasize them here at the end. So we see clearly in Christ we've been blessed well beyond measure. We have this past blessing. We've been chosen in Christ, in love, predestined for adoption and redemption, these present blessings that we have now through Christ. And even now we have something of our inheritance, but in the future we see this blessing of a full inheritance held out for his people where we are God's treasured possession and he is our inheritance. As we've gone through the text, we've seen that these things, all these blessings have a few things in common. They're all in Christ and they all resound to God's glory. They're all to the praise of his grace. And this passage also gives us the gospel. God takes all the credit. He gets all the praise for this. He took all the initiative. He poured out his grace upon us. He chose to make us holy, to redeem us, to forgive us, to adopt us, to make us his own possession, to bless us with an inheritance. And as this passage constantly reminds us, these things are all to the praise of his glorious grace, but they're only possible in Christ. You can only have the benefits and blessings that Paul is talking about because Christ became man. He lived a life of perfect holiness. He died a death on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, securing the inheritance of all who put their trust in him. He is worthy of our praise. So in response, let us praise our God.
Let us count him as our inheritance. He's richly and surely blessed us with all these wondrous blessings. So let us seek to worship him with our lives, living lives out of gratitude for what he has done. Let us overflow in praise for him, just as Paul himself could not help but do when he was thinking about these blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the blessings that you've given to us in Christ. These things, when we dwell on them, really do overwhelm us. Lord, help us to see the glories of Christ and see the wonderfulness of these blessings that you've given to us. And Lord, thank you for your patience with us when we don't always see these things. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you for Christ who secured all these things for us. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So now let's continue. Let's respond in praise to God as we sing together.